All right, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. It's Matthew chapter 21. And we'll be starting at verse 12. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased and said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. And he left them, and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it, and found nothing thereon, but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. And skipping over to verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard, and he hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it, and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen, that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants, and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. 
And when the chief priests and the Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude, because they took him for a prophet. Let's uh, bow our heads and have a quick word of prayer before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and the message that it's communicating to us. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here among us, that you would empower us to be able to hear you speaking to us. Lord, I pray that you would help me to uh, faithfully deliver this message and that it would be a help to your people uh, as we pray tonight. Lord, we just thank you for your love and your kindness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Imagine for a minute I said to you, I will give you a million dollars. All you have to do is go to my house next Monday and ask for it. How many of you would take me up on my offer? My guess is I wouldn't see a single one of you at my house. And why is this? Well, probably the number one reason is that you don't believe that I have a million dollars, so you're not going to come to my house and waste your time. Some other reasons could be that you don't think I'm being genuine in my offer, or perhaps you misunderstood my offer, or you could be too proud to accept my offer. Or maybe you would arrive at my house but only ask for $100. In the passage we are looking at tonight, Jesus makes us a promise for something far greater than a million dollars. But yet I fear all of us, including myself, uh, rarely take advantage of the promises that are made in this passage. And it's my hope tonight, as we look at this and stir up our memories of this passage, that the Holy Spirit will enable us to pray for mountains to be moved tonight, and that we would actually expect that they would be moved. So we're going to look at this story under three headings. One, the meaning behind the cursing of the fig tree. Two, the requirements of faith in our prayers. And three, the results of faith-filled prayer. So looking at our first point, the meaning behind the cursing of the fig tree. So I wanted to look at what Jesus is trying to communicate when he... uh, when the Holy Spirit records this story for us. At first glance, it looks kind of out of place. Uh, Before it, this chapter uh, largely talks about uh, the rejection of Jesus uh, by the Pharisees and his judgment on them. But what is this story about uh, a prayer, uh, the power of prayer doing in the middle of this? How does it fit into the context of this chapter? However, if we closely examine the themes and events of the themes and the events surrounding this story, and bringing some scriptures from other parts of the Bible, we can see that the withered fig tree fits into this chapter perfectly. Let's start with the general concept of this chapter, the context of this chapter. Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem for the final time during his earthly ministry. And he knew he was coming to die for his people. Matthew twenty seventeen to 19 reads, And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, 
and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. And skipping down to verse 28, it says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. And we also see in verse 1 to 9, we didn't read it, but it's the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. And surrounding his entrance, there was much excitement and rejoicing among the people, or at least a large number of, of the people. And despite his three years of ministry, all the miracles he performed, and the way in which he entered into the city, which was in direct fulfillment of prophecy, the religious elite and most of the people rejected him. As we see in verse 15, then when the Pharisees, then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Oops. Um, and really, the rest of the book of Matthew, including the crucifixion, contains one story after another of their rejection of Christ. In addition to being rejected by the priests and scribes, we can see he was also confronted with gross sin in the temple. The court of the Gentiles was being used as a marketplace, preventing the Gentiles from worshiping there, profaning the temple, and profiteering off the worship of God. Jesus had earlier in his ministry cleared the temple of these merchants and money changers and had spent three years teaching and doing many miracles. Yet, all of that was completely ignored, showing their rejection of Jesus as the Son of God. So moving past the story of the fig tree, there is a confrontation with the chief priests and elders where he asserts his authority comes from heaven and then he tells, after that, he tells two stories condemning the elders and priests, one of which we read earlier. So throughout this chapter, there is a definite theme of the rejection of Christ and his rejection of them. So how does the story of the fig tree fit in? Is it a little object lesson about the power of prayer just thrown in for no reason? Or is there something the Lord Jesus is illustrating to us through this scene that fits the context? The answer to this question is hinted at in verse 43 of chapter 21. Therefore, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. The fig tree in our story is the nation of Israel, and Jesus came looking for fruit and found none. This can also be backed up in other parts of Scripture, such as Luke 13, 6 to 9. Let's turn there together. It's Luke 13, 6 to 9. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answered, and he answering, said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. In this passage, Jesus describes Israel as a fig tree that he is seeking fruit on. 
And that imagery is very similar to what we find in our passage as well. If we turn to Hosea 9, 10 to 17, it's right after Daniel. Hosea 9, 10 to 17. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at our first time. So already we see that Israel is being compared to the first ripe in the fig tree, that first fruit. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves unto that shame, and their abominations were according as they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird from the birth and from the womb and from the conception. Though they bring up their children, yet will I bereave them, that there shall not be a man left. Yea, woe also to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I saw Tyrus, is planted in a pleasant place, but Ephraim shall bring forth his children to the murderer. Give them, O Lord, what wilt thou give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. For the wickedness of their doings, I will drive them out of mine house. I will love them no more. All their princes are revolters. Ephraim is smitten. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yea, though they bring forth, yet will I slay even the beloved fruit of their womb. My God will cast them away, because they did not hearken unto him. And they shall be wanderers among the nations. In verse 10, we see Israel is likened to the first ripe in the fig tree. Also in verse 16, we see a reference to a dried up root. Similar imagery to the withered fig tree. Also in verse 16, we see Israel or Ephraim, being cursed with fruitlessness, just like the fig tree was in our passage. Also, verse 15 describes God driving them out of his house for their wickedness, which parallels Christ's actions when he drove out the money changers from the temple. There is more we could say in this passage, including how the order of events is mirrored in Matthew's account, and there are more passages we could turn to that describe Israel as a fig tree. But for the sake of time, we'll conclude by saying... Christ clearly intends to illustrate the judgment of Israel and coming destruction of Jerusalem through the object lesson of the withered fig tree. Moving to our second point, the requirement of faith in our prayers. Starting at verse 21, Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, if ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. So this section begins with Jesus saying, Verily, which could also be translated truly, certainly, or surely. It is often used by the Lord Jesus Christ when he is about to share something of special significance or he wishes to emphasize that what he is about to say is true. What he says in verse 21 and 22 is one of the most prayer-empowering sections in all of Scripture, so the Lord takes special care to grab our attentions and prevent us from minimizing or rationalizing away his statements. He wants us to grasp the magnitude of the promises he is making so that we would be empowered to pray for the impossible with confidence. 
After his introduction, he states two conditions on the promise. The first is that you must have faith, and the second is you must not doubt. In many ways, these, are, these two conditions are two sides of the same coin, so for the sake of time, we won't break them out into two separate subpoints for tonight's message. But we see that we must have faith, which can take on several forms. On the most basic level, we need to have faith in Christ for the salvation of our souls. Without this kind of faith, God is not obligated himself to answer your prayers, and by implication, you will not be moving any mountains. You might ask, what does it mean to have saving faith in Christ? I'm just going to take a couple of minutes to briefly answer that question by starting off with the problem we all face. Because if we don't know that we cannot underst- if we don't know that we cannot understand why we need to be saved. Every person is born into this world a sinner, which puts, puts us at enmity with God. Or you could say our sinfulness separates us from God and makes us enemies of God. Why is this? It's because God is perfectly holy and just, and he cannot be anything but perfectly holy and just. Therefore, he must punish sin, or he would become unjust and unholy. So he cannot admit us into his presence without our sin receiving its due punishment. We can understand this on a human level if we consider a hypothetical situation where a human judge has a murder case in front of him. Let's assume the trial is almost concluded, the evidence has been shown, and it is certain that this man is guilty. There's a video of the suspect committing the crime, his fingerprints are all over the crime scene, his DNA was on the victim, etc., etc. And everyone is just waiting for the judge to hand down the sentence. How would you feel if that judge said, I find you guilty, however, I am a kind and merciful judge, so I forgive you. You are free to go. You would feel indignant and cry out for the judge's resignation. He wouldn't be seen as a kind and merciful man. He would be unjust. In the same way, this human judge cannot just forgive this man without becoming unjust himself. God cannot just forgive you without becoming unjust. That is man's biggest problem. God cannot be unjust, so he cannot forgive your sin unless the punishment for that sin can be paid in some other way. Thankfully, God, in love, did provide another way for the punishment of your sins to be paid for. And this is the good news. He sent his beloved, perfect son into the world to die for the sins of his people. Through Christ, we can be made right with God, since God will accept Christ's blood as payment for your sin. There is only one thing commanded of us, repent and believe which is really one action. We are to turn away from our sin, the very sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, and turn to Christ, trusting in him and him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. So I urge you, if you have not looked to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, do so now. Repent and believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now coming back to our text, assuming we are saved and have that foundational faith for the forgiveness of our sins, what other type of faith do we need? There are several aspects of faith we could look at, such as God's willingness to answer prayer or his power to answer prayer, but for the purpose of this message, I wanted 
just emphasize the fact that the believer must have faith that the word of God is true and certain. This is foundational to having true faith, as faith is not a feeling or an idea that can be conjured up in our minds. It is a trust we place in an object or person. If we don't know what we have faith in, we cannot have true faith. In order to have faith that God is willing and able to answer our prayers, we must know God, the object of our faith. And we do that by reading and believing the Word of God. The Word of God also gives us promises concerning prayer that we must believe and use in prayer in order for them to do us any good. Our passage is a perfect example of a promise in the Word of God designed to stir up faith and encourage us to pray for big things and expect God to act on our behalf. If we doubt our passage is true, then we won't grab hold of it during our prayer time tonight, and and it will not have its intended effect on us, and we will not see mountains moved. James 1, 6-7 says, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. So this passage shows that there are times that a believer can miss out on the blessings of God because of his or her lack of faith. Faith is a requirement for receiving the blessings described in this promise. So finally, we're going to look at the results of faith-filled prayer. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. After giving the conditions, Jesus tells us the promise, and it truly is astonishing. Now, many of us have read this section many times, and due to that familiarity, the magnitude of this promise is sometimes lost on us. Jesus is essentially saying your prayers will accomplish greater things than what he just did. Now, this is where knowing what the fig tree represents helps us to truly understand what Jesus is saying. Remember, what Jesus did to the fig tree represents his cursing the warped and twisted Jewish religious system and essentially saying that this system will wither away and become like a dead, rotting tree. No longer will God work through the types and shadows of the Old Covenant, and no longer will he accept worship through the temple. In chapter 24, verse 2, he makes this crystal clear by predicting the destruction of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. If you were alive at the time, that would have seemed impossible, as the temple was one of the wonders of the world and protected by the powerful Roman Empire. Politically, it would have been as unlikely as a mountain being moved. If we understand that, we can see this promise promises something much greater than mere geological disturbances. He is saying that the spiritual mountains we face in our day will be moved and cast into the sea in response to faith-filled prayer. To drive the point home, Jesus then reiterates and broadens the promise in a very straightforward in very straightforward and forceful terms in verse 23. Or 22, sorry. 
In all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. There can be no doubt what Jesus means by moving mountains with this clarifying statement. All things that we face in this life can be brought to Jesus in prayer without limitation. Now, this does not mean I can expect to receive sinful things from God in response to prayer or things that are not promised in the Bible or go against his will. Many have twisted the scripture to mean that we can order God around and turn him into our personal genie that will grant us our every desire. The word believing dispels any such notion as it is impossible to have true faith in something that is against God's will. Remember, faith is a gift from God according to Ephesians 2.8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And God will not empower you to have faith to ask for something sinful or against his will. However, to the true child of God, this is not a limitation of the promise, but a safeguard that we are thankful for, as the sinful side of us would only ask for things that would be damaging to us. What this passage does promise is far more desirable and wonderful than what it doesn't promise. We can go to God tonight in faith, asking for God to remove those spiritual mountains that have been looming over us for as long as we can remember. Maybe it's an unsaved loved one, or a sin you can't seem to overcome, or a broken relationship, the need for a job, or help to be a good parent, and scores of other personal mountains we could list. Maybe it's a societal mountain that is grieving your heart, and it seems impossible that it could ever move. I'm thinking of abortion, euthanasia, rampant sexual perversion, authoritarian governments, and many others we could list. Or maybe it's a religious mountain that could be burdening you, like the false religions that are leading people astray, the need for a revival, awakening in the church, the lack of laborers in the harvest, and many more. Take all of these burdens to God in prayer, believing that he can move that mountain that is on your heart. Remember who your God is, believer. He is the all-powerful God who is over all creation, who also loves you and delights to hear and answer your faith-filled prayers. And unbeliever, remember that you could pray your first faith-filled prayer tonight, and God will move that unpassable mountain that sits between you and him, your sin. Through the sacrifice Christ made on the cross, you too can be made right with God and begin a new life in intimate fellowship with your Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you've given us tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would um, empower us as we go into our prayer time. I pray, Lord, that you would give us faith to ask for those mountains to be removed that are in our life, that are on our hearts. And God, that you would be with us. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would would move in us and help us and encourage us tonight and throughout the week and bring this passage to memory. And Lord, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.